Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the LCLC podcast. In this episode, I talk with the poet, Tom Slay. Tom delivered the closing poetry reading of the 2000 LCLC conference. We spoke just prior to his appearance as the very first planned LCLC virtual keynote speaker after we decided to add a virtual pre-conference to our upcoming 2023 conference. In 2000, Tom stopped off in Louisville on his way back from Los Angeles, where he had appeared at the ceremony announcing the books shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Awards, of which his collection, 1999's The Dream House, was one. The author of 11 books of poetry, including the newly published The King's Touch, Tom has enjoyed sustained critical praise since the appearance in 1983 of his first collection, After One. He has also published translations, plays, and two collections of his nonfiction prose, the most recent being The Land Between Two Rivers, Writing in an Age of Refugees, Grey Wolf, 2018. This mid-career turn to war journalism has garnered Slay a new audience while also distinguishing him from the vast majority of American poets in terms of subject matter, making him one of our most essential writers for understanding the times in which we live. On a side note, Tom was my first creative writing teacher and he and I have remained friends since I studied with him at Dartmouth College back in 1985. I began my conversation with Tom by asking him the question I like to ask all my guests, just what do you remember about your visit to Louisville? Well, you know, before I say something about that, Matt, um, I just wanna say uh, for your listeners uh, that you know, we were at Dartmouth together. I was nominally your teacher, um, but I often found that the kind of irony that you approached everything with was such a relief from the usual uh, exchange I had with folks. And I remember when you had graduated and you wrote um, Big Sid's Vincati, um, I thought it was a beautifully written book. Um, you know, Sparin style, full of heart. And it reminded me in a funny way of uh, another one of my books that I absolutely love, and that is um, uh, A.J. Liebling's A Sweet Science, uh, which is about boxing. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you uh, after all these years. So just wanted to say that up front. And uh, in, in terms of what I remember, uh, what I remember, I think, most uh, immediately was walking into, I think it was the Seal Bach Hotel, very mm-hmm. swank, super art deco posh uh, bar um, called Gatsby's, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, it was sort of, you know, kind of amazing to me because I just finished uh, reading, um, you know, The Great Gatsby over again and it was kind of amazing to be in the same space where you know 
Fitzgerald got lushed up while he was training, I guess, at the uh, for World War One. Um, and I also remember meeting Alan Golding, I think, at the party afterward. And we yes. have. Yeah. And we had a lovely conversation uh, about Williams and Pound, I think, and certain aspects of modernism, if, you know, that term is still used anymore. And he was um, warm and witty and irreverent in a way that I really enjoyed. And then that was the first time I ever met Sarah Gorham and um, Jeffrey Skinner. Mm -hmm. And I think I talked to them just before the reading. And I have to say, Sarah Band, um, you know, it's an amazing adventure and taste, uh, perseverance, and a real love of books. And it's rare that you'll find people were that talented as writers uh, being as generous to other writers. So I just wanted to say that to, to begin with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Well, what I remember uh, thinking back on our time together that weekend was the clearest memory I have is having to take you back to the airport uh, my recollection is that you came in and then on Sunday morning, we had breakfast together uh -huh. and then I took you in uh, my car, which wasn't my dad's grand marquee. It was a Mer it was a Mercury Sable and I missed the exit to the airport <laughs> and I announced this to you. And I kind of looked side eyes over at you and I could see Tom Slay's a little nervous that he's going to miss his flight because even though I'm assuring him that I do really know how to get to the airport and don't worry, there's a second way here with a second exit and we're really not that far away <laughs> that you were saying to yourself, this may not be going as planned. And part of me was like, maybe I should just make him miss his plane. And then I'd get, <laughs> then I'd get to spend more time chatting with Tom and, um, but no, 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 I've got to get him to the airport. And I wonder, which we did. And I, I, I took you up the curb. I didn't go into the airport with you. I said goodbye yeah. at the street. And I wonder now if Tom Slay in 2022, after all of the experiences that you've had in between now and then, would be quite so rattled at the prospect <laughs> of missing a domestic flight. Uh, probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact is, I'm uh, despite the fact that I've been in all kinds of, I've been in Iraq. You know, I've I've had um, the experience of flying into Mogadishu and uh, the plane is suddenly veering and taking evasion maneuvers because <laughs> everybody's afraid that uh, anti-aircraft fire is going to, you know, knock us down. Um, no, I'm, I'm actually kind of a nervous flyer and it's such a funny thing because, of course, my dad... One of the things he did was uh, he was an aerospace engineer. And so I remember once being in a plane and I was very nervous. And I, you know, I, I'm the kind of flyer at times um, only on 
domestic commercial flights uh, who's thinking to himself, why is that guy enjoying himself? Shouldn't he be helping me keep the plane up in the air? And that kind of, that kind of paranoia and megalo, you know, fear uh, kind of comes out in me when I'm on domestic flights. But honestly, when I'm flying in a bush plane, um, like in Kenya, or when I'm going, when I was going up to Dadaab, or when I am in a plane in which I've just been told that, uh, you know, we're going to deploy decoy flares uh, so that if a heat-seeking missile comes at the plane, uh, that the decoy flares will be hotter than the engines of the plane, which will make the uh, missile kind of veer off and follow the decoy flares because of the heat signature. Um, I'm totally calm in those circumstances. Maybe it's because I, I remember Frank Bedart once said to me that uh, stepping into a plane was like stepping into his coffin. <laughs> and that, of course, if you know Frank, is definitely his sense of humor, but also he's not kidding, you know. Stepping into his coffin would be sort of a relief, I think, at times. He may feel differently about that now that he's in his 80s. Mm -hmm. But I probably would have, Matt. <laughs> I probably would be still nervous. But it wouldn't have anything to do uh, with you or anybody. <laughs> it would just have to do with, with my own anxiety about being in the air. If God had meant us to fly, he would have given us wings. Right. True? Well, I thought a little bit more after uh, enjoying myself with that initial memory. And you visited at my house and I was I was then married uh, to my first wife, uh, the poet Martha Greenwald, who later studied with you at Swanee. And we may have been trying to ply you with drinks and get a sense of um, what might be some good avenues and outlets for her uh, her publishing opportunities as a poet. Right. And you you threw your hands up in the air then and said, I am going in a new direction, and it wasn't I'm going to run off and be a war uh, correspondent and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and come back with stories about flares. It was I'm going to be a playwright, and oh, I am right. really totally starting out new, and I wish I had contacts in this new world. I got nothing. Right. Where, where are we with Tom Slay, the playwright? That's a wonderful question. Um, well, I learned a lot about writing when I sat down and began to write plays. Um, the highest highs I've ever had as a writer are with plays and equally the lowest lows. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than your friends having paid cold hard cash to come to a play of yours, uh, which for whatever reason is a dog. And uh, they're coming up to you during the intermission and trying to say things like, well, the lights turned on, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but totally apart from that, the, you know, the, the plays that worked out and it's such a, you know, group art um, that really the writer is only the writer. That's it. 
I mean, you're no longer the control freak that you are as a poet. You, you, you're not directing, you're not the acting, you're not the whole uh, shebang. But one of the things that I loved about writing plays was that everything that I knew about writing poems was of very little use. Um, texture on stage is incredibly boring. Um, overly elaborated dialogue is boring. Um, everything's about a certain kind of innuendo, getting into a scene late, getting out of it early. Um, and I learned a huge amount about compression, which I think came back into the poems. And one of the reasons why I think uh, I eventually just stopped doing the playwriting, I actually had, you know, some uh, surprisingly, you know, some very successful plays um, in, in an off-Broadway format, uh, which, you know, is fantastic in New York, what can I say? But what happened is when I got into the journalism, it kind of began to take up that part of my mind which wanted to do something else. And also, you know, because it's a collaborative meeting, uh, medium drama, you have to deal with a lot of people. And after a while, I just got sick of dealing with people, you know? Um, it wasn't that anybody was in particularly, you know, bad or anything like that. I didn't have any awful experiences in that way, but I actually liked the solitude of it. And the journalism kind of fed into the part of me that wanted to forget completely about Tom Slay. So that when I was over in Iraq or, you know, Kenya or Libya or wherever, um, I wouldn't have a thought about myself. I mean, literally not a thought for two, three weeks. And I found that hugely, you know, uh, just freeing in certain ways because everything was about outward observation. Um, you know, I remember once somebody asked me, well, don't you feel that when you're uh, in certain threatening circumstances that you're afraid and and don't you feel like when you're seeing these terrible things that you know uh you're close to tears or you feel guilt or all these you know rather complicated emotions and i thought about it and honestly i just said you know i don't really have time to feel afraid you know and even if i'm afraid it's not going to make me uh do my job better is going to make I'm going to make bad decisions and I probably will end up being shot, being blown up, whatever. And it's sort of. Uh, but the freedom of not thinking about yourself, of being totally absorbed into what you're looking at, asking questions of other people and then, you know, you'll see you've seen some you know, I've seen some very, very extreme, you know, devastating human situations. You know, I've seen a famine up close. I know what that is like. People coming in off the desert in terrible shape and, you know, literally days away from death. And when you see that kind of stuff up close, it really does change 
your whole perspective about your relationship to your daily life, as well as um, how you think about uh, your own life and whether what it's worth, what other lives are worth. All of those things suddenly get transformed into a, uh, sometimes it can seem uh, brutal and pointless and other times you know you'll be there with starving people and you're just amazed at how good humored they are actually how funny they are how until people are taking their last breath anyway or until they go into coma they're still just people and that was a revelation they're not you know swollen bellies with their ribs sticking out like the you know kind of disaster porn of biafra they're just, they're ordinary human beings trying to live their lives in extremely difficult circumstances, but they're totally willing to reach out to you and try to meet you. I mean, I'm, I remember meeting a camel seller and having a wonderful conversation with him about the price of goats. He's saying, well, you know, the price of goats is in the tank. And I said, well, why is the price of goats in the tank? He says, because of the drought, they don't have anything to eat. So nobody wants to buy a goat if you can't feed them. So the price is in the tank. And those kinds of wonderfully, you know, sort of uh, practical, hard-headed conversations, uh, they've meant they've been everything to me, really, over the years. Um, and so that kind of replaced the impetus to write plays, although I feel like maybe in a way, once I learned what I needed to learn, about language and plays and then began to import some of that back into the poems maybe maybe that scratched the itch i don't know mm -hmm. well i think you've given me some more insight as to why you don't feel fear fear getting on a plane uh in those situations i had a a much bigger wind up uh in our correspondence to this question it involved uh -huh. me talking about the fact that our connection goes back to 1985 when I took Intro to Creative Writing with you and you had just published After One and now we're talking and celebrating The King's Touch, which is your 11th collection of poetry. And it made me wonder why we don't have the selected or the portable Tom Slay <laughs> Is this part of why we don't have it, that you're you're still in this journalism mode and you're not really thinking about yourself? Uh, you know what it is, Matt? I, I, I thought a lot about the question. I had not, it, several years ago, I was asked to put together a selected, you know, just in a practical way. And, and I, I sat down and I suddenly had this very superstitious feeling um, and the superstitious feeling was, is this going to be a stepping stone, you know, this book or then the other way to think about it? Well, what if it's just going to be an impediment, a kind of tombstone? You know what I mean? And and at that moment, then I just thought. I, I remember Tom Gunn, you know, was a very dear friend of mine. He had many, many people who knew him much better than I did, but. I remember Tom uh, telling me that after you wrote Jack Straw's Castle, 
that he got stuck. And he got stuck for a couple of years and he thought he might be finished as a writer. And so what happened is eventually Tom began to write the poems that went into Passages of Joy, which is a really beautiful book. But what Tom said to me that he took a vow at that time, uh, sort of, you know, picked it up from Robert Duncan. And that is that he was going to complete an entire book and then write another book, you know, or at least half of another book beyond that. And so he completed Passages of Joy, but rather than, you know, going to the ego high of publishing it, he didn't publish it. And then he wrote half of the poems that go into The Man with Night Sweats, which is truly a great, great book. And just hearing Tom, you know, talk to me about that, I thought, huh, his emphasis always was on something forward. Let's keep going, you know. And at my age, you know, uh, if you sit down like I do, the, basically the last three books I've had, I've all been whittled down from a much larger collection of poems. And so in a way, I, I feel like those those books are kind of mini selected poems. But the other the other question, if I do sit down and do a selected, the book I would like to do was something that um, Robert Pinsky suggested to me a couple of years back. And he said, why don't you do a selected that will focus on kind of these public facing poems, that is war and the consequences of war. Um, and and I thought, well, that would be interesting because um, I'd never. You know, I hadn't really reread my work, man, until I got your email. I have literally it was years and years since I'd looked at anything in the past. And so I started to not look at all of it, but, you know, kind of reread here and there. And I discovered that, you know, war as a subject goes all the way back to my very first book. So in a way, if I were to make a selection of poems based on that principle, uh, it might also be representative. But right now, for right now, you know, my impetus is always on on the next complete collection. Uh, and that's sort of where I'm putting my energy at the moment, partly because, you know, um, you know, I'm I'm getting on, you know. <laughs> right. Have you have you thought about appointing somebody to do that work for you to gather together? Well, I have, material? I, I have a literary executor, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so. But. Um, you know, the future is chancy, so I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't ever think about that either. Honestly, you know, I mean, you know, this is not a secret about me. I think it's f well known to those people who know my work. Um, you know, ever since I was in my early 20s, I've had a potentially fatal blood disease and, you know, it's nearly killed me three times. I, you know, I still live with with it. Um, and the fact that I'm still alive to me is kind of miraculous to me because when I got diagnosed when I was something like 26, the median age for people to die was like, you know, 36. So I had something like 10 years. Uh, so anyway, um, but I didn't, you know, and here I am, uh, the oldest living poet who never did die of a potentially fatal blood disease. So anyway, just a word to anyone out there. 
you know, denial. I, I highly recommend it. Denial right. and a sense of humor and distance from your own, you know, uh, you know, situation. If you can, if you, if you're lucky enough to be able to cultivate it. Right. Well, if your if your uh, literary executor goes forward with one of these projects, I will. If I have uh, access to them, I will bug them to oh sure make make sure to include your master's thesis, which is still on file at Johns Hopkins. And <laughs> one weekend while I was visiting uh, my friend and a fellow student of yours, uh, Rosemary Gould, who was at oh, the, yeah. who, who sends her greetings, um, who was a student then at the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins with um, Heidi Erdrich as well, was right. was was teaching there at the time. And I uh, was down visiting and I went over to the library and I pulled your uh, master's thesis and I sat there and with a pencil and a yellow legal pad, I, I wrote <laughs> the entire manuscript and wow. I, yes, I did. And uh, I'm amazed that graphite I was crazy to do it, uh, but then I, I never actually I stopped myself from typing it in. But I still uh, have the yellow yellowing oh sheets, God. and graphite has still sustained itself all these years later. And I came across this passage from a poem, and all the poems are written in syllabic, something you and I talked about when I confessed this to you earlier. Um, and it's called Drive-In Theater, and it ends... The screen rises white as mirages soak into the hills. My father, having worked through his Monday off shining the popper, stocking the snack bar, sits alone in his lot, the gauge showing empty, the whole of Texas sprawling around. And I really always liked that image. I, I guess I thought it was the, the best bit in it from your juvenilia, let's call it. Yeah. And it, it made me wonder as we were prepping for this conversation, if perhaps unconsciously or inadvertently, you've always been a poet of the wide open spaces of America, but you weren't really able to see it. And strangely enough, seemingly no one else has. No one has spoken of your work as the work of a regional poet of the Southwest or the West. That's true. What do you... What do you make of this oversight? You know, in a deep way, you know, when I began to think about it, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, one thing about my work, either in poetry or prose, I'm, I'm just highly attuned uh, for whatever reason to, you know, the landscape that surrounds me. And also, I'm just highly attuned to the texture of day-to-day -to -day life, uh, just in terms of events, in terms of, of the literal physical um, things that surround us every day. And so when I began to think about it, I think that maybe, you know, one of the things about my fascination with the Middle East and, um, is that the, um, it's just a like feeling of coming home to a landscape that I recognize from a long time ago. You know, I've lived in New York for a long time now. And of course the landscape of, the West is couldn't be more different, except in the way that I try to liken buildings to mountains, which of course they aren't. And and the other thing that I was, began to think about was that when I was a kid, uh, like you say, the 
my mother and father ran a drive-in movie theater. And as I was thinking about it, I suddenly remembered something my mother said, and that was that the movies, which really, you know, brought in the cars, uh, were the old westerns. And so here I was sitting in the West as a kid, very young, you know, uh, sleeping. You know, my I went to the movies every night. There wasn't enough money for babysitters. So Tim was on this side of the window while this old green Plymouth. I was here. And basically the movie was the kind of the bedtime story. And, you know, the credits would roll and, you know, the voices would come through the speaker and then I would be out and. But the the thing about it was, was that I began to think about it. And I said, so if if you're here and you're watching the landscape that you're living in projected on a screen at huge scale. I thought, well, wouldn't that be a kind of mode of perception that you later on bring into your writing? And when I think of like those old John Ford movies with the cavalry stretched out, you know, marching through, you know, Monument Valley, it, it just suddenly struck me that, you know, that I had certain kinds of similar experiences in terms of the vastness, say, of the Libyan desert. I hope you are enjoying my discussion with Tom Slay. If you are, then please hit like and subscribe. That way, you will know when part two is available. And as always, please consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult thelouisvilleconference.com for details. Thanks again for listening.